Welcome to Meaningful Meditation for Life, hosted by Dr. Erhard Vogel, who has taught among the Himalayan sages for the past 50 years and is recognized around the world as a master teacher of self-realization. On this podcast, we invite you to discover his teachings, guided meditations, and classes. You'll return over and over to your favorite episodes in the archive and continue to grow with each new episode. Welcome to a beautiful day, a beautiful new experience of awakening that we have in this moment, in every moment in our potentiality. Today I have a very special, very seasoned sage, one of the sages of our era of this time. This is Dr. Erhard Vogel. Dr. Erhard Vogel has been introduced to me by my good friend Eric Kaufman, and Eric was really deeply moved by Dr. Vogel shares the depth of his presence, his life experience. We had a beautiful chat before we've been on here. I have an opportunity to meet and to feel the depth and the resonance and the life experience you hold, which is far more than one lifetime, of course. Thank you so much for being here. This is a form of warrior sages, those who are committed to the path of truth and love, self-realization, and of becoming the deepest embodiment of their dharma, their gift, their passion, they're offering in the world. So I'm very honored that you're here with us today. Thank you. So let us start, you know, in our share, you have such an amazing background, how you came into awakening, how you came into consciousness and enlightenment. Would you give us a little taste of that experience for us, please? How it started? Yes. I, I still cannot explain it all because it started when I was six years old. And... I met death during a bombardment of World War II uh, as a six-year-old child in Germany. Uh, we knew that the uh, bombs were coming towards us. Uh, a neighbor's house right across the alley from us was flattened into a crater. And we knew that we were gonna get hit soon. And so we ran into the basement, my mother and two siblings and I, where there were about a, a dozen other people. And my immediate family, we pressed ourselves underneath a stone arch because we knew from years of experience of bombardments, when a bomb hits, it creates a big vacuum and it can pull you, suck you out from where, out of your shoes and plaster you against a stone wall and have you end up like a bloody stamp. So um, I knew, I felt, I knew I was going to die. And I wanted to be completely present to experience myself as I was now in the body and whatever was going to be when the body was going to be killed. I didn't know what it was going to be. And now thinking back, how did a six-year-old think that way? But I think we come into this world with a certain amount of material impressed in us, you know? I mean, to me, that's, that's very clear now. And so anyway, uh, I wanted to be so present, so I concentrated with everything that I had. And, you know, this really shows, again, how it's like through crisis that we shape up and get, get ourselves together. And there's no crisis as strong as 
meaning death, you know. And so I focused so much and so clearly and so strongly that the lights went on inside of me. It was like a beautiful illumination. And I didn't bother to try to explain it to myself. It was just plain, clear, conscious being. Even then I knew that I didn't have those words, but I knew that's what I was experiencing. And then the bomb hit, which made like another big illumination. And because we were pressed underneath this arch, we survived the direct bomb hit on our home. And there were in another space right next to ours were a dozen other people sitting and they were still sitting there on, a, on benches but they were all dead. And then as we came upstairs out of the cellar, uh, we walked into this land of, it was surreal. It was like all destruction. Everything was black and charred and so on. And, but I was still in this state of just elevated consciousness. And, but then I noticed like, oh, there is a tree, there's a bird in the tree. How come that's still alive? Or there's our laundry and it's all cut apart by shrapnel and made all messy. How could they do this to my laundry, our laundry? You know, this kind of thing. So in other words, my mind was taking me to things that it would light on and distract me out of this pure state of experienced consciousness. And I didn't want that. I wanted to stay in that state. So I knew even six years old, it was obvious to me that my mind was distracting me and I wanted to have my mind do what I wanted it to do, which is part being part of this conscious experience. Yes. So in order to do that, I had to grasp my mind, hold on to it and make it do what I wanted it to do. So I focused it just like I did in the, in the cellar, to focus it on a chosen point. And I kept on devoting myself to, this was the main thing of my six year old life is to do this over and over again, day in and day out. And about a year and a half later, I had a moment of just complete illumination again. It was similar to the previous one. Uh, but there was more uh, that I was in consciousness about. The consciousness was like more expanded. And somehow I figured out that that was due to the focusing that I had been practicing so, so strongly and determinedly. And that then became my life. You know, even no matter what I did, I went to school and I was a kid and played and whatever. And then we moved to the United States when I was 14. <clears throat> and I had to, you know, go to work in order to be able to make money to go to college and so on. And all of those things, but that this underlying theme of being in that state of consciousness was the principal point. And in that state of consciousness, I, I experienced eventually that is what I am. Mm. That is who I am. That is the very essence that I am. And how do you find define your who you are? By your essence, 
not by the superficial stuff, but by the essential. The essential was that I was being and that I was consciousness. Being and consciousness are inseparable. What good would being be if all everything that's being did not have any consciousness to it? It would be just totally absurd. So yes. consciousness and being are the same, are one. And that's what I realized, that's what I am. Yes. But now, then you examine what that is. Is that a physical thing? No, it's not. What is it then? It's not an object. It's not, you don't have a consciousness organ inside of you or something like that. What is that? Well, it's a pure energy. It's a force. The power to be is a force. Consciousness is a subtle force. Everything that exists, exists due to the power to be. It wouldn't be without the ability to be. Yes. The ability to be is that force by which we are. And that is inseparable from consciousness. You see again? Yes. That's <laughs> a beautiful distinction and understanding, yes. So that is understandable, isn't it? Yes. I mean, even if people never heard of this before, that makes sense, though. Absolutely. It speaks to who you are. So you, you feel that reverberating inside of you. You can say, I can experience that. And through that experience, I can say, this is true. I know that. But then you go further. If, so if you're clear about the fact that you're not a plumber or a doctor or a housewife or a this or that, or a blonde or a brunette or a man or woman, which are the ways by which we state our identity. Now, those are momentary things about us. They're not our identity. They're not the essence, the underlying thing about us. So when you get past all of that and know what you are in essence, then you, you become interested. What is that essence? So it's power. It's power to be. What are the characteristics of power? Well, every, every child has learned in school that, that energy, power, is indestructible and indivisible. Don't we all know that, right? I mean, that's kind of well-established. <laughs> so, but, you, but I, I just said now that we are that power to be. So, in other words, we are indestructible, indivisible force. That's what we are in essence. And that's what I experienced when I met death. Yes. That's what continues even after your body doesn't continue. Do you see? Yes. And so having this direct experience of our true nature in a way grounds us in the eternal. And my experience of that is it makes the superficial, it makes the temporal life not so serious. It lessens the intensity of it being as important as we project yeah. the importance onto it. Right. It makes it less dictating. Yes. Dictating. Because the, these temporal conditions, these circumstances and conditions that most people have their life directed by, they're not important. They are not the directive force. They're not the essential force. The essential force is that you are and that being that you are is also consciousness. So then 
you see with, if you were to think of yourself, okay, look, I'm a pauper who, who rolls around in the gutters and is, you know, terribly uh, poor and dependent upon circumstances and conditions. There's a way of, of being and a way of thinking and a way of feeling and acting that comes out of that perception of yourself, right? If you were to think of yourself as the royal being of this realm, your perception, your feelings, your emotions, and your actions would be decisively different. Yes. If you were to think of yourself, I am the, not just as a words, but as an experience, I am the power of being whose consciousness, who is interconnected limitlessly and has no boundaries in time or space. Wow, how that then influences your way of thinking. And that's what I experienced when I was, I lived in a cave in the Himalaya for an extended period of time. And I was like in this amazing joy and luminosity and just, I had nothing to bother me. I had nothing that I had to do except to be. And people there, they value that. The, the villagers who may be who, living hand to mouth, they will feed somebody like that because they think it's very important to have that influence in their area, you know? So that's how I lived. And I was ready to live like that for the rest of my life because there's nothing better. It's the ultimate bliss that I was in. But then I remembered the folks back home, they, they are suffering from anxiety and fear, depression, need and lack, and on and on, frustration, politics, <laughs> taxes. They're suffering because they don't know. They don't know how easy it could be to be free of all of that and to be so rich and so full and so successful. I can just stay, cannot just stay here by myself and be in the joy of that. I have to share that. So I had to come back. And I knew I'd have to pay, pay the taxes, drive the car in traffic, and have to do with <clears throat> students who may be difficult and so on. But I had to come back. So because we're interconnected, we care for each other, and we influence each other. We are constantly, each one of us, is constantly in influencing this whole ocean of being by the way we are. Be it in your family, be it in your community, your nation, be it in humanity. We are. You know, for many years, many ancient traditions had the value of some type of hermitage, retraction from the world, withdrawal from the world, as you had your cave experience. Yeah. And my feeling has been we're in an era now where there are some people who are drawn and are called by their propensity, by their karmas, to such type of retracted or monastic type lifestyle. But the most of us are not of that propensity. Most of us are called into the world of, of all of this, of all that you just shared, all that we're dealing with. Lives, children, work, family, homes. Right, right. So 
with those of us who have that propensity, how do we find this true self and maintain the seat, being seated in our true self in the midst of the foray that's going on? That's a very, very important question. And my, the short answer is, you have to find yourself sufficiently worthwhile to look into it. Because that's what your life is about. Your life is not about being true to what you are not, right? Being true to what you are not. Your life is not to be devoted to superficial, passing, momentary junk. Your life has real meaning and purpose. Your life in the human form is an enormous opportunity because we have the faculties, feelings, emotions, mind, intellect, intuition, senses, body. We have these instruments to experience being on every level that it exists. And we, we are not meant to remain in ignorance. We are meant to evolve. And you know, it's even known what the question is, what happens to an, to an organism that doesn't evolve? What happens? It dies. Right? So just us going through, you know, having to pay the rent and keeping the job and this and this, that's not what it's about. Those are momentary stuff, you know? We're meant to evolve to that state that we have been talking about now, to, to be fulfilled in the joy of limitless consciousness an interconnected being, so that when we, when we are losing the body, we continue in consciousness to ongoing realms with joy, with knowledge, with being there. Yeah. So now you mentioned also these points of places of refuge. That's very important. Uh, in India, uh, where I lived, among the sages, they have what is called ashrams. Ashrams are uh, places, uh, seats of knowledge, uh, ideally with a sage running it, but not always the case. But they're places of knowledge where people can come to. And the ashram that I live in, in the Himalayas, they have about 300 people working there and living there but they are open to the, to the society, to humanity. It's on the pilgrimage route. So in India, people from all over the country go and wander, no matter, even they take their whole family to go to holy places on pilgrimage. And so they stop in this ashram and they're allowed to stay there overnight and they're fed and housed for three or four nights. And it can be a family of eight, and they stay there the whole, the whole time. And <clears throat> when they're done, they might bring a couple of oranges as their payment for having been able to stay there. That's totally okay. Somebody else might stay there overnight, and he might, you know, uh, leave 400,000 rupees and say, here, in memory of my dear departed mother, put a new floor into your kitchen. I, I see you need instead of earth, you need a tile floor there. Do you see? 
So that's like that. That's the routine. The ashram never charges for anything, but it provides a lot of service to the society. It feeds all the poor every day <clears throat> of the surrounding areas. So they cook all the food, they serve all the food, clean up afterwards. <clears throat> they put dozens of children from the mountain tribes through school from first grade through university and pay for <clears throat> the tuition, the housing, the food, the books, as well as sometimes paying the parents who have because they lose a worker on their farm, you know. So they do that <clears throat> without any charge. They produce thousands of books and they have their own printing press and they sell them for next to nothing, like a dollar a book or something like that, you know. Um, they have established leper colonies or, you know, you still have lepers there. Their, their digits are eaten away by rats and so on. And they're pretty much outcasts from the society. They were relegated to being on the side of the path where the pilgrims would come by and they stick out their fingerless stumps and would get a coin thrown in, which might be worth a tenth of a penny. And at the end of the day, they were able to buy a handful of rice. While the ashram built actual places, <clears throat> huts in which they could live, strong wooden huts and with running water and toilets and, and established villages and established crafts with which they could support themselves with the members of the ashram would then sell in Europe and what have you, you know. So they had a, a hospital, a free hospital where people would get medical care, including surgeries and so on, as well as a daily walk-in emergency station where people would line up every day to get, you know, medicines for stuff and so on. So in other words, these are places of refuge and places of service that are completely run by contribution. Here, that doesn't work. Yes. People don't give, if you don't charge for something, it's not good. <laughs> it can't be worth anything. <laughs> different context and culture, totally here. I did, I, I spent uh, a couple of years going on a, what was International Yoga Peace Mission during Vietnam War. I traveled in a gigantic white, white school bus throughout the university system of the United States, parts of Canada. And I'd set up in a town and teach for a month. I teach yoga and meditation classes. Monday through Friday, three hours class. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> it never occurred to me that people don't have time for that. They, they showed up and they did it. And they were like enormously popular, popular classes. I mean, I'd start like with maybe 20 to 30 and it would go up to 200 people or so. Wow. And I never charged, but I traveled in this bus. And so I left the, the hat at the door and said, okay, you can make contributions to keep me going to the next town and so on. Well, people would have a three hour class and they would float out of me. Oh, that's the most wonderful thing that I ever had. And they throw in a nickel. <laughs> if anything at all. That's how we are here, you know. In India, that wouldn't happen like that, unless you were poor, you know. And even in India, if you're poor, 
They will share with you most of the food they have. Exactly. They will unconditionally because they see an honored guest as the divine itself showing up at the door. I experienced that. I, the, I traveled around India and you can't hitchhike there very successfully. So I traveled by train, which is the main source of travel. And I traveled third class that was along with the ducks and the chickens and the goats and so on. And, and the families. And they always have their, their food with them and always insisted that I share. And I'd usually have like a bag of nuts with me or something like that. So I was, I was okay, but they insisted that I share. And now in the beginning, I was very reluctant. And then I quickly learned that's insulting. Yes. You know, you, you have to graciously accept and they were just so sweet about it, so wonderful. The hospitality, that's a universal law we were talking about early, is like, is totally distributed throughout India. It's hospitality. And not just India, all the Arab countries and so on as well that I traveled through. Yeah. So let's, let's dial into what's going on right now. There is a lot going on on the earth right now, a lot going on in politics, health, COVID. We're in this very uncertain time. I would love to hear what your sense of is going on right now on a spiritual dimension with us, and perhaps even how we can approach the uncertainty of these times. Right. Well, I, I gave you a little bit of my motivation when I talk, talked to you about how I felt in the cave. Yes. But throughout life, <clears throat> I've been, you know, handling the question of what can I do? Because in the face of like the, the, the political uh, maneuverings and shenanigans and so on, you're, you're apt to say, there, there's nothing I can do about this. And I never wanted to accept that. And I still don't accept that. So my way of helping is to help people get sane, to get sane, to live by knowledge. It doesn't even have to be highfalutin spiritual knowledge. It's just the knowledge that is self-evident in front of us. But when knowledge is turned into a political football, where you punt it from one side to the other, then you're in trouble because knowledge is no longer respected, nor trusted, you know. Now, for example, with COVID, we could say, look, <clears throat> we know it's an infectious disease. This is not a political statement. This, you could say, is a fact that is well agreed upon by people who have knowledge about these things. Uh, you can't even use the name anymore because scientist has become another political football. But people who study this and know it and are expert at it, scientists, they can tell you that COVID is a virus that is highly contagious and it is airborne. They can also tell you that <clears throat> to protect you from the spread of that, you need to wear masks. And they can give you proof that the masks have uh, prevented to to a considerable degree, the spread of the disease. But if you are attached to being ignorant 
or you listen to somebody who says, no, masks are not good at all. Uh, there is no proof that they help. There is a lot of proof that they don't help. And you want to believe in that, then your relationship to truth is thereby in hazard. It doesn't help. So we need to become a society who values truth. Yes. Not opinion, not political opinion. These are not matters of political opinion. And we need to <clears throat> reward those who value truth and those in government who guide us in truth, as opposed to reward those who kill us by the thousands by being proponents of falsity. This is the responsibility that we have as a populace and not to just let it become political opinion. Yes. So I've already said things, trying to be very neutral, that will be highly controversial because they're true. <laughs> That's part of the problem if you speak the truth. It's that allyship and living the truth, I believe is our highest protection. In fact, it's our only protection. Well said, I agree. With truth and be truth and, and, and express truth and nothing less. And yet our society is not built, nor is it designed to value truth nowadays. The truth as a value is eroding, 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 almost now valueless. Well, that's because people try to make it subjective. See, I differentiate between <clears throat> reality and everything else. And very few people have this way of looking at reality. Reality is what is, irrespective of likes and dislikes and opinions and times and affiliations. It's just reality is that which is. It's not uh, <clears throat> people say, well, who, who says what is reality? Well, but if you live by the standards, it is what is. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of interpretations. It's our responsibility when we say this is reality that we speak the truth, not our opinion or what we would like it to be. There has to be a standard, a substratum, so a foundation upon which we can base our <clears throat> way of being, our decisions, our way of relating to everything. And that foundation is reality. Reality is irrespective of likes and dislikes, time or space or anything else. It just is and it permanently is. It, reality doesn't change. So one of the fact is, the fact is a reality of our being is that we are being. That is an unchanging fact, independent of whether we're rich or poor, male or female, <clears throat> Indian, Muslim or Christian or whatever. Reality is what is. And a basic fact of reality is that we are being. And then from there, you can extra extrapolate other things about what being is, and then you live by it. If you live by reality, you will prosper. 
you will flourish. Because look, what is the opposite? Living against reality, it's like spending your life banging your head against a concrete wall. It's going against yourself. The self that you are, the reality that you are, if you go against that, of course you will not flourish. You will lose all of that energy by going against yourself. And that's what needs to be encouraged in our human interactions, in our politics, in our voting, our choices, that we encourage reality, which then the experience of reality yields knowledge. And knowledge we can apply to our way of conducting our being, our way of being, our lives in this lifetime. Yeah. We do that, we're in harmony with ourselves, with who we are, and therefore with each other. And harmony is an underlying power by which we thrive. Disharmony disrupts, discourages, disjoins, disses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this brings me now to, we have this great political unrest in America. Half the people believing in one thing, half the people believing in another. But this is repetitive. You and I have been through so many cycles to see if we're wise enough, we'll pull back enough. The faces change, but the dynamics are fairly the same. Yes. So how, in this day and age, what is your advice or support to those who are experiencing such conflict? They can't believe, how can this be? These people are this way. You know, this demonization going across all, all, all aspects. This, this is the question that I already addressed in what I was just saying. The thing is, you have some yardstick, some parameters by which to experience because there's also a wonderful, reliable law. It is called the law of cause and effect. Or as in India, they say karma. It's the same thing. The law of cause and effect. It is totally just... It is free, the law is free of opinion. It's just cause and effect. Whatever you cause, you will experience the effect of. And the effect is always related to the cause. In other words, you cannot cause harm and experience flourishing from that. <laughs> you know, when you cause harm, you give harm to whoever you cause it to, but most of all yourself the law of cause and effect. So what is the cause and effect of having living and having voted into a system that is contrary to truth? The, the effect is always suffering. Are we a nation that thrives free of suffering? Or are we a nation that experiences an enormous amount of suffering? I think clearly anybody could say it's the latter. And even if you, a particular individual, are flourishing because you're making money from all of this suffering, doesn't mean that eventually it's going to bite you in the back. 
right? Yes. You will suffer. Those who make others suffer, make themselves suffer even more, even when they're too ignorant to recognize it. So it's valuable now to, from what, I, from what I'm hearing you're saying, to pull back and restrain ourselves from the dishing out of this separative force, from the blaming, shaming, vitriol, demonizing. That's right. And in the spiritual discipline, restraint is very, very important. Restraint from behaviors that are contrary to truth. Restraint from lying. Restraint from anger. Restraint from negativity. <coughs> restraint from all of the behavior that are in support of what is not right, of what is not true. So restraint is a very important part. It's almost a dirty word now to hold yourself in. And I was there's a noble, divine aspect of this. Right. Restraint must not be looked at as a limitation, but it's a liberation. Yes. yes. See, it's a dirty word when we think of it as, oh, it restricts me from doing harm. Like yes. wearing, a, wearing a mask restricts me from infecting other people. Therefore, it, 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 it limits my freedom. I, I should have the right to infect as many people as I want to. Right? <laughs> That's how twisting thinking gets. Yes. But cause and effect. We have... We have the onerous record of having, I think, the most deaths now in, of any country in the world. When we always say that we're the best country in the world, the most advanced country in the world. Wow, how is that advancement? You talk about these restraints, the noble aspect, the liberation aspect of these restraints. Uh -huh. What are the other sides? So if those are the restraints to pull back these propensities or volatilities, what are the, what are the actions to actually forward and bring forth? While restraints need to be understood, they are not to be the principal focus. I have, I have what I call a 180 degree rule. So when you see, for example, to restrain yourself from lying, 180 degree opposite rule is cultivate speaking only the truth. So every restraint has its 180 degree opposite. And if you just focus on living that and promoting that, you will thrive and the restraints will be taken care of because you put all of your energy into the positive. These are the classic yama niyams of, of yogic yes. philosophy, Hindu philosophy. And this is even applicable to me in meditation. Most people have great difficulty learning how to meditate. Um, <clears throat> when I was this lecture circuit for a year and a half that I went through, I mentioned earlier, I would tell people about how, how my students meditating have certain specific things happening to them. Things they could rely on happening within them, strengths, abilities, clarities, peacefulness, balance, and success, even in their work. 
And people would come to me and say afterwards, oh, I have done a year, 15 years of this such and such meditation, this Buddhist meditation, this Vipassana meditation. And I always ask him, okay, what is, tell me the steps that you institute in order to be able to meditate, right? There are certain steps you need to have because without them, you, it's not possible to meditate. Oh, well, um, I look at a candle and, uh, well, the most prevalent thing was I tried to make my mind still. You're already defeated. If, if your focus in, as a father is to get your three-year-old son to keep his mind still, you're in trouble when you tell him that because he'll do exactly the opposite. And so does your mind. You'll be wrestling with your mind through the whole thing. So it occurred to me that I, I've, I've created a set of techniques, steps that you need to go through. And we do this always in guided meditations. We always go through those steps. They're very simple. Anybody can do them. Anybody can follow those steps. And then you're ready to just let yourself flow into meditation. But without those steps, your mind is amok, your body is twitching and you know itching to move and keep on distracting you, and you're in trouble. So going back to the 180 degree rule, like one of the things with the mind is when you're so finally there and then your mind needs to be in a state of stillness, but that needs to be understood. It's not, it's not a, a, uh, a sleepy state or yeah. a dull state. It is a dynamic being present state focused on your point that you choose. And so in that state, you're able with the mind, have your feelings, emotions, your senses and intellect, because the mind is the coordinator of them, have them all present, harmoniously balanced with each other, because often they're fighting for superiority amongst each other. So they're harmoniously balanced with each other. Then they're able to, in that state of tranquility, reflect the purity, the light, the luminosity of being, in other words, consciousness. Yes. That is meditation. But if you don't know how, how to get the mind to be with you like that, you will not succeed. So, and then, so, and then when you get towards the state where the mind, okay, you've had it, but then what happens when the mind all of a sudden comes up with another thought, then that interferes. And then you, oh, you want to suppress that and you wrestle with that. No, that's another distraction, you see? So what's the secret to, then the, uh, what, what is the secret? There is a secret by which you can have nothing be a distraction to your mind anymore, even if other thoughts come up, you see? Yes, beautiful. You know, we were chatting earlier about death. And right now, I don't know about you, but Sometimes I have the feeling of death in the air. And in the warrior traditions, you know, the philosophy is do not cower from death, face death, face death fully. Make an ally. Oh, wonderful. Well, I can speak to that. Yes, I would love to because, yeah, I'd love you to share about that, please. First of all, <clears throat> death is imminent. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> That's a statement. Death is about to happen for yeah. all of us. And we think, oh, I got some years. But as we get older, we can see how quickly those years go by. Right? But death is imminent. But I learned to appreciate death when I was, when, when I faced death in the, in the bombs, because death gave me this fantastic gift of luminosity. And I learned to love and appreciate teacher, uh, death as my principal teacher in life. Death is the teacher of my life. Because as I said before, if we didn't have to face death, we probably wouldn't shape up. <laughs> we just go lollygag around in life and be miserable, you know? But because of death, some of us get it together and live a meaningful life. Death is the greatest teacher. I love death. I have even reams of poetry that I wrote to death in my life, even as a child. Yeah. You have a book that, a, a, a dialogue with death. Would you be kind enough to share that? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be on Zoom or not, but this is the book. And it's called A Dialogue with Death, the Teacher of Life. It's an ancient story for the modern world. Death, teacher of life, ancient, modern. And it, it comes very much from my initial relationship with death that continues to this day. Uh, and I used a, an Upanishad. An Upanishad is something that is, Upanishad means knowledge of import and meaning that is realized. That's an Upanishad. That's what the word says, Upanishad. And there's one that is called the Kata Upanishad, which is uh, an Upanishad about with death, where a young man, do you want me to tell you a little bit about this? Yes, that'd be wonderful. Okay, so this, this is a wonderful story. Upanishad is written in very tiny little paragraphs that are utterly pithy. And it's only just a few pages of those paragraphs, which then have to be interpreted. And <clears throat> they are usually inter interpreted by sages only because they, they cannot be understood. And often the inter interpretations are very hard because they are so pithy and hard to understand. So I've worked on that for, for years, interpreting it in such a way that <clears throat> anyone who reads this book will find there the highest of all knowledge, very clearly exposed, very densely focused, step by step, even in one sentence, there is so much in each sentence. So you need to be focused. You need to find yourself, again, worthy of giving yourself that kind of focus. Yeah. And <clears throat> so the, the story is about this very evolved young teenager, young man, who witnesses his father giving sacrifice to the temple priests. And he gives barren cows, you know, he says, look, they're, they're, they're not even able to give milk anymore. They're worthless, they're just bags of bones. 
And he's giving that as a sacrifice to the gods, hoping to get, you know, good stuff in return. And he says, my father, and <clears throat> what you're doing is not good. You're giving, you're giving to the gods worthless things. And his father, go, go away, I'm busy, go away. And then <clears throat> after a while he interjects again. And that takes a lot because these are days where in those days, the son, the father was the son's teacher, his guru. And he only addressed him with utter respect, you know? And so um, he says it again. <clears throat> the father goes. And the third time, and the father gets really upset and he blows up and he says, go to death, like go to hell. And his father is deeply hurt by that. And he says, look, I've been a good student. I'm, and then he did, decides what are three kinds of students. There's one kind of student <clears throat> who does what the teacher tells him to do. That's one kind of. A better kind of student does be, what the teacher would tell him to do, but he anticipates it beforehand. And the third kind of student is whom the teacher tells what to do, and he doesn't do it. He says, I'm certainly not of that kind. I'm between the first two, you know. And, but I, for the benefit of my, my father and my family and my society, his, his word needs to be kept. That's very important, that there's integrity, that the word you make, give is kept. Whether you like it anymore or not, that it's kept. So he decides to keep his father's word. He's going to go to death. So he goes to where death lives, and he finds that death is out on errands. So the death's wives keep him there, and he waits for death for three days and three nights. And here's where the law of hospitality kicks in, because universally, that's, it's a universal law that when a guest honors your house by showing up at your house, you're meant to entertain him, wash his feet, give him food and drink, and have, you know, scintillating discussion with him. Death hasn't, comes, comes home after three days and nights and says, oh God, I, I wasn't here. I wasn't able to do this uh, in honor of, you know, the, the rights of hospitality. I owe you, I owe you big. You know, tell me, I'll, I'll give you three boons, three gifts, anything that you want to, but that you can qualify for. So this young man is very smart. He's very evolved. He wants the very highest. And have you never thought about that, right? Like the, the tale of the, the genie coming out of the bottle and so on. And I thought about that as a child and living in war and starvation and so on, I felt I deserve the very highest. I've, I've paid my dues. I want the very highest. And I answer that question to myself. So when I saw this in here, I was able to relate to that, you know. And so they engage in a dialogue where the young man not only asks for what he wants, but then death challenges him and the young man has to explain his readiness to understand and receive this highest of knowledge. Because it's like a surgical instrument. If you, 
it can be, do a lot of good, but if you abuse it, it can do a lot of harm. So it is with high knowledge, you see? So uh, they engage in this dialogue and death tempts them. He says, well, you know, look, forget about that. Like, forget about your father and all that. Uh, I'll give you, you know, uh, great, great lands to own. You will be a king and you have armies of elephants and so on. Stay out. Armies of elephants and so on. And uh, celestial maidens, you'll have children that are powerful warriors and rulers, and you'll be hundreds of years old, and even in old age, enjoy all of this, not be decrepit and you know gone mentally, and so on. And the young man says, no, 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 no. No, I want the very highest. And he knows what the very highest is. It's in relationship to what happens to me when, <clears throat> when I die, what happens to my soul, what realms, what, what is more than, even more than immortality, and so on and so on. And so the book is so written that if you focus in reading it carefully, you will, your understanding will thereby grow that you will understand each part building upon the next part and that thereby you evolve to the not only the knowledge but the realization of the highest. So that's a dialogue with death, the teacher of life. So beautiful. I'm so looking forward to receive that. Death has been my best friend and will be our ultimate embracer regardless. There you blessed. The, the, the ultimate immunity. And Please. you know, the, the yes. thing, one thing is about death, you can always depend upon them. <laughs> right? Please share with us how our Warrior Sage brothers and sisters, family can reach you, how we can find out about your ashram in San Diego. Well, very simple. Google. Google Nataraja. N-A-T-A-R-A-J-A, -A -A, like the cosmic dancer, Nataraja, Yoga Ashram. Okay. We will make sure that that goes in the comments and that people will have that access. Nataraja, yeah, Yoga Ashram. Yeah, and when you go to our website, uh, you Google that, go to our website, you find the, the three books in there, the books that I just talked about, plus two others, and uh, you find a bio biography of of Erhard and hope i think even some recordings of guided meditations all kinds of entertainment Beautiful. i'm so looking forward to when this lifts to come and visit you in san diego and visit our warrior sage family and, and now that i know you're there it'll be an honor before we complete today is there any last words in your heart to share with our warrior sage community <sighs> Find yourself worthy to go for the highest. You deserve it. Oh. And don't waste your time on the dumb stuff, the temporary stuff. Don't waste your time. You're worth more than that. How's that? <laughs> Beautiful. Dr. Vogel, I'm so appreciative of your depth of wisdom, your lifelong experience, generosity of your spirit, all my love and gratitude. And I appreciate meeting you today and to have this. I feel we had a good meeting of souls today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And more to come. 
Namaste. That means I salute the power and beauty of being that you are. Beautiful. And I salute that in you and in all of you warrior sages. Have a lovely day. Thank you so much for dialing. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.